The church didn't stand a chance. It was born in occupied territory of the most powerful empire of all time, Rome. This era was known as Pax Romana, or Roman peace. But Rome's message of peace was, don't mess with us, give us what we want, declare Caesar as Lord, and we'll let you live. Hmm, an interesting notion of peace. Under this oppressive empire, the church, rooted in the Judean countryside, offered something radical to oppose the chaos, fear, and brutality of the Roman world. Anyone looking upon the might of the Roman war machine, compared to the petty resources of this seemingly insignificant people group, would conclude that the church would be completely swallowed up by the Roman Empire. Yet here we are, 2,000 years later, gathering to worship the God who ushered in this revolution of love. How did they beat the odds? In a word, Jesus. While Rome had its Caesars, its armies, and its power, the church had a God who knows the way out of the grave. Well, it's so good to see all of you here this morning. It's good to see you in your favorite school colors this morning. It's great to have our college students back and some of you here for the first time. We welcome you. We hope that you'll find this to be a place that you can call home while you're here studying. Uh, we're grateful for those of you who have tuned in uh, uh, online this morning and are worshiping with us. I, I just hope that uh, for the next three weeks you'll come back, all right, because we're just starting out on this three-week series simply called The Revolution. Now, whenever I, because I love American history, whenever I hear the, the term, the revolution, my mind naturally goes back to the uh, American history, the Revolutionary War. Names like George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and so many others. Uh, were it not for those who made such sacrifices and had such grand visions, I wouldn't know freedom. And, and, and the blessings of living in this country. And I think all of us could agree that even with our faults and failures as a country, this is still an awesome, great country, and we are privileged to live in it. So I've always wanted some kind of a connection, you know, family-wise, back to those days of the Revolutionary War. And so with help from a local genealogy expert, uh, Dave Inting, a friend and part of this congregation here, I've confirmed that on my paternal grandmother's side... There is clear evidence of patriotic involvement. Corporal William Nixon, my fifth great-grandfather, who immigrated from Ireland, served as a drummer in the Continental Army, and fought in the Battle of Spencer's Ordinary under the command of Colonel Richard Butler. That battle took place near the Chickahominy River, just outside of Williamsburg, Virginia. And you say, yeah, but what about the Ellsworth side? Not so much. I've learned that most of my ancestors on the Ellsworth line were loyal to the king and to the crown, and they fled when the war was over up to Canada. I suspect I'm not alone in that divided history. If you took your family history back, I bet you'd find those who were patriots and those who were loyalists, that you would find those who fought for this country and those who stood firm for the crown. And I've, I've had to ask myself the question, what would I have done had I been there in that time. You see, it's really easy some 200 plus years after the fact to look back to the days of the Revolutionary War and say, well, yes, given what I know now, certainly I would have been a patriot. But I also know that I'm kind of an, a, tend to be a law-abiding citizen, so would I have bucked the system? I don't know. I'm grateful for our country. I'm glad for the Revolutionary War. But where would I have come down? 
I've asked myself that question about an even greater revolution that was started 2,000 years ago in history by Jesus Christ. I mean, it was one that bucked the system. So would I have come down on the side of Jesus 2,000 years ago, or would I have come down on the side of the status quo? You see, at that day and time, it was a period of unrest. It, it was dominance by the Roman Empire. And revolutionaries and would-be messiahs were not all that uncommon. Judas of Gamala, Simon of Perea, Thutis, and countless others that were both before Jesus and after Jesus rose up to say that they had the answers, they had the way, they could lead in the revolution. And they were either squelched by the authorities or most often executed by the power of Rome. It was not uncommon in that day and time for the roadsides to be littered with crucifixions. Jesus, as a boy, would have seen crucifixions on the roads. And I've often wondered, in his young mind, did he look forward to a day when he knew what he'd have to face? Judas of Gamala is often credited with creating the Jewish sect known as the Zealots, a band of guerrilla warfare insurrectionists whose sole aim in life was to kill Roman soldiers and those Jews who worked for Rome. Interestingly, in among the 12 apostles, Jesus called one Matthew, a tax collector, a Jew who worked for the Romans to be an apostle, and he also called Simon, Simon the Zealot, one of these insurrectionists whose sole aim in life was to put to death Roman soldiers and, and Jews who worked for Rome. You talk about a team of rivals. Jesus had his hands full with these 12. Those two alone were at polar opposites of the political spectrum of the day. Now we seldom think of Jesus as a revolutionary. Uh, we should, but we don't. And I think the reason that we don't is because so many revolutions throughout history have ended badly. The Bolshevik Revolution gave way to communism in the Soviet Union. The Cuban Revolution brought Castro into the international spotlight. The Chinese Revolution resulted in Mao Zedong and the reign of death. And even the French Revolution included the reign of terror when so many thousands of innocents died. So what is it? What is it that sets Jesus apart from all the rest? Why is it that he does not fit the typical definition of a revolutionary? Well, I think there's a lot of answers. His revolution did not and was not a physical quest, but a spiritual one. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. His focus wasn't on gaining power, but on setting others free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. It wasn't self-serving. It was humanity serving. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You see, it wasn't about toppling an earthly dictator, monarch, or tyrant. It was about renewing our allegiance to the God of the universe. No one ever spoke like him, cared like him, or sacrificed like him. He so impacted our world that there is simply nothing else or no one else in all of history that compares to him. Every day, folks, that you either read or you write 2018, you are marking the fact that the spiritual revolution of our modern time began with the person of Jesus. Our modern history, as we date it, started with him. You see, he came to start a spiritual revolution because of our spiritual insurrection 
that we call sin. So who was this man? Who was this revolutionary man? What did he claim? Well, he claimed to be the long-awaited promised one, the fulfillment of prophecy, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, God's atonement for sin, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I, for one, believe that he is the one with the answers, power, promise, and hope for all eternity. He invites us to follow him, to learn from him, believe in him, serve him, and trust him. In return, he promised to be with us, lay down his life for us, come back to get us, and extend eternity to us. In addition to the reported signs and miracles of his ministry, he did something that no one else before him or after him has been able to accomplish, and that is rise from the dead. This singular moment separates him from all others. If it's true, then he is God and his spiritual revolution is the only one in this world that matters. If it is false, then he is the greatest imposter of history and we are the biggest laughingstock of all time. The resurrection then is the hinge pin of history. You cannot ignore it as if it doesn't matter. Because it is the dividing line. This moment changes everything, one way or the other. And this has been the sticking point of his revolution for 2,000 years. What do you do with the resurrection? You just can't ignore it. Too much rests on the answer. After years of mocking the Christian faith, a bright college student agreed to a factual debate to once and for all bury Christianity. He believed he could do that. So encouraged by his atheist cohorts, Josh McDowell spent hours studying the archaeological and historical evidence surrounding that period to prepare for his debate performance. <laughs> the debate never happened. Because by the time that Josh McDowell got done reading and studying all of the evidence, he came to believe that the resurrection is true. Ended up writing a classic book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. When I was first starting out in ministry, that book had a profound impact on me and my preaching. Josh McDowell writes that there is no, that there is more factual, historical substantiation for the existence of Jesus than the existence of Plato and Socrates combined. And that the resurrection is the single greatest evidence for the trustworthiness of Jesus' claims and promises. I, it's true. I, I get the dilemma this morning, folks. I'm encouraging you to trust a God I cannot prove who's promised to take us to an eternal home that we cannot see because Jesus, whom we have never met, paid the price of our sins that we cannot undo or get rid of. And the guarantee for all of this is the resurrection that we did not witness. That's a tall order. I understand that. But I believe it is true. With all of my heart, I believe it is true because in all of my study and searching, I have never found anything or anyone who makes more logical sense for life or gives greater purpose in this world. I cannot find a better explanation for his empty tomb. The evidence simply does not support anything less than the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm not alone in that belief. Millions through the last 2,000 years have lived and died trusting in him as the one. Thousands have died as martyrs because they were more willing to give up their life than they were to abandon their faith. And his family, the church, 
has continued for 2,000 years. What could cause such gatherings 2,000 years later if there was no truth to it? What could explain the change and transformed lives that surround us every day if there was no truth to it? When the great missionary to India, William Carey, neared his death, this is what he said about his funeral service. He said, when I'm gone, say nothing about William Carey. Speak only about William Carey's Savior. Really, that's the heartbeat of all of our lives. It's not about us. It's about him. There is simply no one like Jesus. But don't you dare take my word for it. I appreciate your kind listening. I, I'm, I'm glad if somebody says, well, if Tom, if Tom believes it, I, I guess I'll believe it. That's nice. But don't do that. You do your own searching. You do your own digging. You do your own research, but here's, because here's the thing. If you come to the conclusion on your own that there is no greater answer, there can be no other answer, then you'll believe it with all your heart. And you see, that's what this revolution is all about. And you say, well, what, what is this revolution that he started 20 centuries ago? Well, he came to start it, and it happened on a Sunday morning. 40 days after Jesus had ascended into heaven. He wasn't even here when it actually got a start. The apostles were patiently waiting in the city of Jerusalem for God to reveal his plan. Jews from all over the region had come to Jerusalem for the holiday that celebrated the harvest. And that's when it happened. Guided by God's spirit, Peter stood up and preached for the very first time a sermon about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is how it ends in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the people heard this, the sermon. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 were added to their number. On the day that the church began, this revolution began, 3,000 people said, I'm in. And I'm going to spend my life worshiping, serving, and proclaiming the risen Christ. Now there are those today who are turning their backs on the church. And I suspect there's probably more negative books written in our recent time period about the church than any other period of uh, at least recent history. And some of those books have even been written by believers. I've read many of them. I, I understand the concerns. I understand the problems. I understand the issues. Oh, and folks, given the heartbreaking news of recent days about those both young and old who have been hurt or abused are taken advantage of by those in church leadership. I understand the skepticism. Hear me say it. To use the church, whether Protestant or Catholic, as a veil to hide sinful, despicable behavior is inexcusable. I realize no one is perfect. I don't expect perfection. The Lord knows I'm far from it. But when the church preaches one thing and acts out another, when those who lead in the kingdom say one thing and live out another, it not only ruins vulnerable lives, it trivializes the very revolutionary spirit of the one who gave his life for us. So I can understand 
why some throw up their hands in exasperation at the church. It's no wonder that some look at the church in a skeptical, negative, and condescending way. Our newest generation, less than 25% attend church. It's still true that about 80% of the work is done by only 20% of the people. The median average age per attend- or attendance per service in the, in, in the United States is 90 people. That's the average me- or the median uh, uh, adult attendance. Hundreds of churches permanently close their doors every year. So you can throw up your hands, shake your head, and conclude that the revolution has faded into oblivion. But don't do that. Please don't do that. Because if you do that, you're only taking a look at a sliver of the whole picture. And nobody should, nobody should base their life on a sliver of the whole picture. New research published late last year by scholars at Harvard and our own Indiana University finds that religion continues to enjoy persistent and exceptional intensity in America. This research seems to confirm that our country quote, remains an exceptional outlier and potential counterexample to the secularization thesis, end quote. The percentage of Americans who attend church more than once a week, who pray daily, and who accept the Bible as wholly reliable and deeply instructive in their lives has remained absolutely constant for the last 50 years or more, right up to the present. That's awesome news. But then why should we be surprised about that? God has no other plan for the promotion of the gospel. He promised that not even death or the grave or hell itself would be able to overcome his church. Hundreds. Do you know this? Hundreds of new congregations are started every year right here in America. Thousands are popping up all around the world. Today, there are some of the largest churches we've ever seen in modern history. People in the church make the greatest difference in times of crisis. They are the most generous when it comes to benevolent giving, the most accepting of other people, and the most encouraging to those who are struggling. Why? Because God did not create a sterile institution, but a living, breathing, relational organism. It was designed and created by God for us, built up through us, and destined to be shared among us. The church is not exclusive, it is inclusive. Whosoever will may come. It serves a perfect Lord, but the church itself is imperfect so that all of us would feel at home when we come. It has the grandest purpose in the world to tell others about the eternal grace and forgiveness of God in Christ. It does what the United Nations cannot do. It makes believers of every nation and culture truly one. It does what civil rights legislation is inadequate to do. It makes believers of every race and color equal together. Where else can you turn to find genuine forgiveness and acceptance? Where else can you go to find a reason worth living for and a reason worth dying for? Where else can you seek a greater hope than that of eternal life in the presence of God in a place like heaven? Don't tell me the revolution is over. You buy into that and you'll miss the greatest adventure of a lifetime. And I want this church family to be a vibrant, relevant, and faithful part of the revolution. For generations to come, eternity hangs in the balance for Edie's generation and for all the rest who are going to follow. This 
is a place where I pray that the let revolution that started 2,000 years ago will still be alive and well. A revolution needs people who will lead the charge. Let it begin here again. This revolution is about each one of us coming to grips regarding faith. And you say, well, how, how can I really believe? This is just all so hard to put together. Well, I, I don't think it really is. If you really open your heart and you open your mind and you study and you look and you dig and you learn, it really isn't that hard. I, can, can I tell you that everywhere I look anymore, everything points to God and his grand design teaches us so much. Now, we live in this marvelous technological age. I am just utterly amazed at the technology around us. Uh, some, some days I feel kind of like a dinosaur, uh, you know, when it comes to the, the technological advancements that I can't even begin to comprehend. But are, do, do you know where some of the inspiration for this technology is coming from? It's coming from God's creation. For instance, when scientists recently studied the black wings of the common rose butterfly in India, it was noted that the wings absorbed the sun rays really well, helping to keep the butterfly warm in the cool weather. It was discovered that the wing scales, the, the tiny scales on the wing of a butterfly had almost imperceptible holes in each scale. And those holes, those tiny holes in the scales of the butterfly wings trapped the solar radiation from any angle. That research inspired an approach to Solar cells, you know, when, when solar panels uh, either have to catch the direct rays of the sun or they have to shift or move a little bit to keep absorbing all that sun. So the, they're looking at these cells and creating the cells that look like these butterfly wings with holes all in them so they don't have to spend the expensive dollars to have the motion equipment to turn the panels. And what they're learning is that when they follow the pattern of these butterfly wings that you can leave the solar panel stationary and it will absorb the light of the sun no matter where. Isn't that interesting? Don't you know that God sometimes sits up in heaven and just chuckles? And said, I knew you'd get there sooner or later. I started with the butterfly. You're finally getting around to exploring what I'm trying to teach you. Now, folks, oh, folks, if God can create a butterfly with such technological advanced ideas, then don't you think he can take care of and provide for you? And this revolution is best lived out when we work hard to build relationships with one another. Uh, tonight is group link. You know, this is, this is the evening when we really encourage folks who aren't in a life group yet, who aren't in some kind of small group, building relationships with other people to take some time out of get together, find a place where you plug in and you can be with other people because we do best in relationships. This past week on Wednesday evening and Thursday evening, I just, I had such a thrill getting to meet so many students from across the, the, the globe who have come to IU and who showed up here to get a used piece of furniture or two. Oh, their smiles, their, their joy, their appreciation. I, you know, I don't, we are a better place because of the influx of these students who come and benefit not only our community, but they benefit our congregation. And there are relationships in this congregation that started over a piece of used furniture. Relationships that will last into eternity. 
Can you think of anything that is grander than those kind of relationships? Here's the problem with relationships. They take work, they take time, they take energy, they take expertise. And sometimes we just get a little bit too lazy to invest in all of that. We become lax in the relationship arena. Remember what Proverbs 6, 6 says? The wise King Solomon writes this. He said, take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. I love my grandkids watching the, the sidewalks and the driveway and the spotting ants everywhere all through the summer, just gazillions of ants everywhere. Anything but lazy. You just hardly ever find an idle ant. But some of the effects of, now we know the problems with laziness, but some of the effects of laziness are subtler than others. Dr. M. Scott Peck writes that laziness is a contributing factor to our failure, our failure to build strong relationships. You see, relationships require commitment and hard work, but the lazier we become as a people, the less energy we are willing to invest in those relationships. Once again, take a lesson from the ant. Some colonies of ants may house up to a million people. Do you know what research is discovering? That there is in the colony a, a triage unit. And certain ants are de dedicated to that triage unit so that when other ants are injured, perhaps in battle with other insects, are wounded, out gathering the stuff, they are brought back to the colony. And science has studied that, that these ants, these triage ants, will lick the wounds for two minutes. Now, they're, they're going to start studying what kind of enzymes may be available, what kind of natural antibiotic may be available with those ants. And so in their research, the scientists prevented some of the ants from being able to be returned to the colony, and some of the ants were allowed to return to the colony. Of those that were not returned to the colony, 80% died. Of those that were returned to the colony to experience the triage, 90% lived. Tell me God isn't trying to teach us something among the smallest of his creation about relationships and healing and caring and loving. Our relationships require time, energy, and sacrifice, but they are worth every investment because that's why Jesus came to start this grand revolution. Well, I hope you'll be back next week. This is really just part one of this whole concept that we're trying to deal with. There's so much more to be said, but I want to leave you with one more story that illustrates how our Lord's revolution and our sinful insurrection are closely bound and intertwined together. It is the night before his crucifixion. He is alone. His comrades in arms are gone. The torture of crucifixion looms large in his mind. Visions of carrying the crossbeam, of unspeakable pain, of nails tearing flesh, and of a slow agonizing death interrupt his every waking thought. If there was ever a time for prayer, this was the time. But nothing in Scripture ever indicates that Barabbas prayed on that night before he was destined to be crucified. His last night would be a sleepless, prayerless night. As the morning dawned, he could hear the ruckus outside his cell. At about a distance of 2,000 feet, he was separated from Pilate and the crowd that had gathered. And so he couldn't hear what Pilate was saying, but he could certainly hear what the crowd was saying. He didn't hear Pilate ask, who should I release to you? But he did hear the crowd holler, Barabbas. 
And he couldn't hear what next question was, then what shall I do with Jesus? But he could hear the response, crucify him. So in his mind, it was Barabbas, crucify him. His revolution had come to an end. The soldiers' footsteps echoed off of the stone walls as they flung open the cell door. He knew what was next and then could not believe what he heard. Barabbas, you're free to go. There's another who is willing to take your place. They call him Jesus. The insurrectionists hardly knew what to do. I mean, was this some kind of cruel joke? I mean, I don't know anyone named Jesus, and I certainly don't know anyone that would take my place. But when the guards removed the shackles, and he walked out into the sunlight and heard the cheers of the crowd, he knew that the impossible had just happened. Now, do not miss the power in this story. In one incredible moment, the whole narrative of human history is dramatized by what many consider to be a side story. But this is no side story, folks. This is no afterthought. The contrast between Barabbas and Jesus is the story. One man broken by his sinful criminal choices with no hope of redemption suddenly finds himself liberated by no virtue of his own, but by the substitutionary death of an innocent man. That's the story. That's our story. And the irony of this, the irony of this story is lost on us most of the time. History tells us that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. Do you know what the word Barabbas means? Bar means son of. Abba means father. Son of the father. Jesus, the devious son of the father, is saved by Jesus, the divine, the son of the father. The divine son of God takes the place of every one of us. Who are we? But the wayward sons and daughters of God that have been liberated by the one and only Son of God, the murderous Barabbas, a taker of life, is given a new lease on life by the giver of life when they took away his life. I doubt that Barabbas could have comprehended what just happened. He was simply thrilled for being liberated and a free man once again. But, but wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think that Barabbas, having just escaped the crucifixion to live again, would want to know the man who took his place. There is nothing to indicate that he went to the cross to see this Jesus. If somebody died for me, I'd want to know who they are. Somebody has died for you and me. Do you know him? He's the greatest revolutionary that ever lived. And he wants to be your Lord and Savior, your choice. Do not miss the moment. While we stand and while we sing, you choose. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.